0: Let me go. On April twenty fourth, two thousand and eighteen an arrest was finally made in the East Area Rapist case, what would become known as the Golden State Killer case, some 30 years after the serial murders started. I had only just started Michelle McNamara's book about the case, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, and it's even more grim and riveting to be reading it now, knowing that although she sadly didn't live to see it as she died unexpectedly while still penning the book, there is a resolution to this harrowing story. Often in these cases, there There's not much justice to be served. And when there is, it can feel like too little and too late. Culturally, we're so fascinated and held wrapped by stories of serial killers. There are innumerable books and television shows and films and documentaries and websites that are devoted to every possible angle and take and theory for any number of high-profile killers who have terrorized the United States and the world for centuries. Many of the more contemporary examples, like the Zodiac Killer, have found a place in American lore, kind of like Bigfoot or the Jersey Devil. Whatever it says about us, it's proof that we love to fear the monsters in our midst. Even or maybe even especially the human ones. As any true crime documentary worth its salt will tell you, a serial killer is a very specific definition. It's not plastered onto a case by law enforcement lightly. There are, in fact, a number of murder styles, many of which are more frequently encountered than the serial killer. You have mass killers, like the shootings that seem to happen pretty much weekly in the US, where a person kills a large number of people at once, as opposed to over time. So think about things like the Oklahoma City bombing in Columbine, and as you can see, the overlap between mass killers and terrorists is pretty significant. But in general, mass murders are anything that's more than four people. Then there are spree killers. And the difference here is not so much in numbers. A spree killer is generally anything over two, but that what happens is that the mass killing levels play out over the course of several locations and maybe even several days. They don't fall into the background or take a break in between the killings. It's basically like a mass murder that plays out for longer and travels. Now for one thing these are not very common because they're not easy to pull off and they're not sustainable and a lot of times spree killers will work in pairs or work in tandem because it's a lot for one person to successfully pull off. Spree killers are of course then more rare than serial killers though what began as spree Killings may actually evolve to become serial killers. So, an example of this is Eileen Wernos, who started with spree killings that then evolved into serial killings that had breaks in between. But once you get to serial killers, there are multiple types and subtypes, and it's mostly to do with the motivation and, consequently, to some extent, their style. Now, it's sort of like a tree type definition, and you could start with whether the killer is organized or disorganized. So, how well do they plan? How well is that plan executed? How do they handle any unexpected variables? Now some killers stalk their prey for months, others basically pick at random and strike whenever the opportunity or need arises. Then there are essentially from there four different types that are divided up kind of by why they're motivated to kill. There are thrill seekers, mission-oriented killers, visionary killers, and power seekers. Thrill seekers are organized and kind of in it because it feels like a game. It's the thrill of the chase. It's taunting and outwitting law enforcement. In fact, it may even be more motivated by that than by the victims themselves. These people often keep records. They might send and leave elaborate messages at the crime scenes, and that's often what's referred to as having a signature. Then there are mission-oriented serial killers who think that they're doing society a favor. They're doing some kind of service. You might call them vigilantes. Basically, they see it that they are taking out other criminals or taking out people who society would be better off with. Though they're very methodical about it, they don't tend to deviate from the profile in terms of victims. In other words, they're really only ever going after these people that they have deemed to be the bad guys, and so therefore they're actually usually easier to find because they're only ever killing a very specific type of victim. Visionary killers are more likely to be disorganized in the sense that they have or will soon suffer a psychotic break of some kind. These are killers who have delusions where they think that maybe God has instructed them them, or alternatively, that the devil maybe has made them do it in terms of their killing. And sometimes it's not even anything like that. Their perception may be that a neighborhood dog or an inanimate object has actually instructed them to kill. So disorganized doesn't just here refer to sort of their state in terms of planning or maybe not planning all that well their killings, but also refers to their mental or intellectual state. And then there are power seekers, and these are the tormentors. These are the the horror movie serial killers, the ones that kill to inflict the maximum amount of pain and suffering on a victim. They want to not just witness the terror, but they want to be the cause of it. So they're not motivated by sex necessarily for the pleasure, but rather the pleasure that they get from using sex in order to dominate or cause pain and to exact not just power, but to actually take control. Now there are also a number of subcategories or combinations which might begin to emerge as criminologists analyze the case and produce what we would call a profile. If you're in the mood for some really dense true crime analysis, might I suggest the FBI's monograph on serial murder, from which I got the uh, information that I am sharing with you today? So this was actually not necessarily a Wikipedia deep dive or even a Google deep dive, I just went straight to the FBI and was like, I'm gonna just read what they say about it. And as the FBI points out in this monograph, our cultural obsession with serial killers and their presence in pop culture makes them seem a lot more common than they actually are. In reality, they are statistically very uncommon. And when you actually think about it, you know, there might be like 7 billion Netflix documentaries about serial killers, but aren't 90 of them literally about Ted Bundy. So we see a lot of these stories told from various perspectives and angles and told and retold, but we're really telling the story of like the same few like high profile killers over and over again, of which there are really not that many that kind of methodical analysis that helps apprehend serial killers really only began in the 19th century, though serial murderers probably existed way before that. Uh, The elevation of the case of Jack the Ripper, though, really gave us the cultural fascination and macabre puzzle game sense, uh, and that sort of -of edge-of-your-seat fascination, which then Hollywood has subsequently capitalized on, and they continue to do so regularly, and I would say even really exploits that for entertainment. Though, really, the reality of hunting is serial killer is far more tedious and grim and certainly not resolved in an hour-long, very special episode. These portrayals also tend to perpetuate several myths about serial killers which might be good for script writing and might be good for Amazon Prime original series but they really do a disservice to criminology. For one, serial killers are not always creeps who live alone and in retrospect made their neighbors feel inexplicably uneasy. In reality, one reason that serial killers successfully evade capture for years, if not decades, is that they're hiding in plain sight. A lot of time, they seem normal, or fine, or maybe they're even upstanding members of the community. Maybe they're even cops. Maybe they're even Boy Scout leaders. Maybe they're even that neighbor that always helps you with your groceries. Serial killers may only earn their creepiness when their secret has been discovered, and it turns out that they were like a monster in the shadows kind of thing. In terms of what motivates people to become a serial killer, and more often it is men of various ages and races, though white men are certainly heavily represented in the sort of legend and lore, and I think that probably says a lot more about like the reflection of popular culture in film and media in general than it does actual incidents because we know that certainly there are plenty of non-white serial killers. But it also comes down to a number of things which were sort of aforementioned in the description of the four primary types or motivations, but killers may well kill for fun or out of boredom or in order to discard of witnesses because they've committed another series of crimes or they might be doing it in pursuit of fame. But there are certainly way more instances where they don't want to be caught and they don't necessarily want to be ascribed the notoriety because, well, I mean, obviously it would mean that they would be apprehended and go to prison or be executed or face any number of repercussions for what they've done, but also it would mean that the game would end. And in that sense, in the context of certainly the arrest that was made in the Golden State Killer case this week. One of the questions that I immediately had, which is answered in the FBI's monograph and also in a New York Times article that proves that I am not the only person who wondered about this, is do serial killers always keep killing until they're caught or die? Do they ever just stop? Well, yeah, they do. The Golden State Killer is actually a really good example of that, because as far as we know, he hasn't killed anybody for like 30 years. Now, it doesn't mean that the people who go on these like serial killing sprees for years have just lost the urge to do it or the need to do it. Usually it's that the energy was redirected elsewhere, like they found something to substitute for killing, or it just became circumstantially impossible for them to continue to do it. Maybe they had work or family obligations or even something like a physical illness or injury that participation in their murderous activities. Now, notably here, the BTK killer actually committed murders from 1974 to 1991, and he wasn't caught until 2005. Now, in the interim between when he stopped killing and when he was caught, he actually said in interviews in prison that the killing had been replaced by a number of autoerotic activities that became a substitute. Now, as more details emerge about Joseph James D'Angelo, the man arrested in the Golden State Killer, case, who is now in his early 70s, we're hopefully going to get a sense of why he stopped after he had been terrorizing San Francisco with serial rapes and murders in the 70s that seemed to inexplicably stop short in the mid-80s. Now, we know that the ex-cop eventually married and had a family and also worked in a factory for 30-some years that have elapsed since he stopped raping and murdering people. The question then was, what was he doing? We do know one thing that he definitely wasn't doing. According to a former coworker, he never, ever smiled.